Pray with me, please. Breathe on me, breath of God, and set my soul on fire. Amen. <laughs> A few years back, UCLA was playing Stanford University in football. UCLA killed them. The final score was 64 to nothing. After the game, a reporter approached the Stanford University football coach, and the reporter asked, Coach, when was the turning point in that game? The coach responded, When they played the national anthem. <laughs> I want to tell you, sometimes it seems to me that that's the way it is for us in life. I mean, we start out losing the battle to sin and evil in the world and in our own experience. Yes, sometimes it seems to me that we are consistently engaged in doing just exactly what we know we shouldn't do. I guess maybe that's why for the last thousand years the Bible has been the best-selling book on the planet. Because the Bible is dedicated to helping us know what to do when in life we blow it and we know it. This story from the life of Simon Peter is a case in point. The story actually unfolds in three separate chapters. Chapter 1 is entitled Grace. Chapter 2 is entitled Guilt. Chapter 3 is entitled Grace. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself at this point, now wait a minute. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 are the same. Right. You are absolutely right. Peter's story begins in grace. And Peter's story ends in grace. What's more, your story is the same as is my story. Permit me, please, to try to show you what I mean. Chapter 1, grace. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 14 that Jesus gathered his disciples together, and there it was on the night before he died, he spoke to them very plainly. He said, listen, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I have to tell you, I find that to be an amazingly gracious word from the lips of our Lord. Had I been Jesus, I wouldn't have said anything like that. Uh, had I been Jesus, I would have said, I know uh, that you are going to fail me, you are going to forsake me, you are going to leave me high and dry, and therefore I'm just going to have to find some stronger and better people on whom to build my kingdom. That's what I would have said. But that's not what Jesus said. No. No, Jesus said... I know you are going to fail me, but it's all right. For after I have been raised from the dead, I will reconnect with you in Galilee. Amazing. Do you see what Jesus actually is doing? Jesus is forgiving his disciples 
in advance. He is forgiving them before they ever did anything to warrant that forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, I want you to understand that he does the same thing for us as well. Has it ever occurred to you that there is no new sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in every generation? It happened only once. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, yours and mine, long, long before we ever were born, long, long before we ever did anything requiring that kind of forgiving sacrifice. Amazing. That's grace. Jesus forgives us in advance. June the 6th, 1944. That date has great significance for shaping the world in which now you and I are living. June the 6th, 1944. We know that day, of course, as D-Day, the Normandy invasion. This massive military maneuver was launched from England, crossed the English Channel, and then landed on the shores of northern France in the region of Normandy. I have to tell you, one of the most unforgettable experiences of my life occurred just last summer when Trisha and I were blessed to stand in the spectacularly silent beauty of the American cemetery at Normandy. A cemetery stretched out high atop the cliffs, towering over what we know as Omaha Beach. We found ourselves moved to the core of our being. As we walked past row after row after row of white crosses set amidst lush green grass, 10,000 crosses telling 10,000 stories of uncommon courage and sacrifice. If, as the saying goes, war is hell, and it is, if it is true that war is the ultimate expression of human sin and evil, and it is, nevertheless, sometimes the evil of war can evoke an almost indescribable bravery and sacrifice sufficient to give credence to the divine decree. There is no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, to stand in the overwhelming beauty of that place, to be confronted by the reality and the result of such bravery and sacrifice, I have to tell you, it cut right to the quick of my soul. But there in Normandy, I learned something else that happened on that day 
June the 6th, 1944, something that cut right to the heart of my faith. The responsibility for that enormous military thrust fell squarely upon the four-starred shoulders of General Dwight David Eisenhower. On the night the invasion was to be launched, General Eisenhower spent hours and hours talking personally to the young soldiers under his command, speaking to them very much like a father delivering last words to a son. And then at the appointed time, as wave after wave after wave of troops and boats and planes launched into the darkness, General Eisenhower stood transfixed with his eyes awash in tears. And then in the wee hours of the morning, he returned to his own quarters. He sat down at his desk, and in his own hand, he wrote a note. It was a message intended to be sent to the White House in the event the mission failed. Of course, the mission didn't fail, and the message never made it to the White House. But now, thankfully, the message has made it into history. Here is what General Eisenhower wrote. Our landings have failed. The troops, the air, the Navy, did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame attaches itself to the event, it is mine alone. Dwight David Eisenhower. Many brave things done June the 6th, 1944. One of those brave things was this. The general who took the blame. Even before the blame ever needed to be taken. We see something of that in this story of Simon Peter. Jesus, in advance, saying to his disciples, I know you're going to fail me and forsake me. I've known it from the very beginning. But it's all right. For after it is all said and done, I will meet you again in Galilee. Jesus forgiving in advance. That's grace. Pure grace. Pure, amazing grace. Chapter 2, guilt. Afterwards, Jesus took his disciples out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, the soldiers arrived to arrest Jesus to take him into custody. At that point, his disciples faced a choice. They had to choose between their friend and their skin. They chose their skin. They took off. They all ran away. They left him there alone to be seized by the soldiers, to be carted off to stand trial, if that's what you want to call it to stand trial in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. Now, at that point, the Bible gives us a wondrously telling little detail. The Bible says very simply, Peter followed at a distance. <laughs> you see, he didn't want to be 
too close to Jesus. Ah, but he didn't want to be too far away either. He didn't want to be with Jesus, but he didn't want to be without him either. And so he followed at a distance, tried to make himself invisible, then tried to obscure himself in the dark shadows of the courtyard of the palace of the high priest. I tell you, his spirit at that moment must have been in a turmoil. And then his heart must have jumped out of his chest when suddenly the servant girl of the high priest pointed at him hiding in the shadows and said, you are one of his friends. Peter immediately retorted, I don't know what you're talking about. A few moments later, another accusation, and from Peter, another denial. And then after that, yet a third charge leveled against him. You're one of them, I know it, because you speak in that very noticeable Galilean way of speaking. Stop this sermon right here. Sidebar. Maybe, yes, maybe Peter did, in fact, speak with what's called the Galilean accent. You know, like some people now speak with a southern accent. Or maybe, maybe it was that Peter had spent so much time with Jesus that he had actually taken upon himself some of Jesus' own expressions and mannerisms. I don't know for sure. I want to ask you something, though. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, because of the way you and I speak and act each day, other people would be led to label us as followers of Jesus Christ? Ah, I'll let that thought save for another sermon. Back to this sermon. Peter responded to the charge by screaming, I do not know the man. And then he proceeded to try to cover his denial with a great blanket of blue language. And at that moment, somewhere in the distance, a rooster began to crow, signaling the coming of the dawn's early light. And in that moment, Peter simply retreated back into the deep darkness of his own denial and deceit. In that moment, he realized that he had done what he promised Jesus he never would do. He had sworn to Jesus that he would never fail or forsake him, and yet now that is precisely what he had done. And in that moment, a great load of guilt, a massive load of guilt, came crashing down upon him with such force that Mark says, Peter broke down and wept. I want you to notice something here. Peter didn't try to rationalize away what he had done. He didn't try to put a positive spin on things. He didn't seek to explain or justify his behavior. He didn't attempt to put the blame on someone or something else. No. He just buried his bearded face in those thick fisherman's hands of his, and he cried his eyes, and he cried his heart out. Guilt. Heavy, heavy guilt. I want you to note this down. I do not 
often say wise things. But once in a while, God gives me a wisdom not my own. So write this one down. Honesty brings healing. Secrets bring shame. Honesty brings healing. Secrets bring shame. Peter knew that the only way to get rid of his guilt was to be honest with God, to get it out, even if he had to cry it out. And that's what he did. Dear friends, if you are being tormented by yesterday's failures, whether they took place last week or 20 years ago, the way to deal with that is to get it out, even if you have to cry it out get it out. Now, you don't have to tell everybody about it. For heaven's sakes, you don't have to tell everybody about it. Ah, but you do have to tell the one who knows all about it. You do have to tell the Lord. Back in the 17th century, the king of Prussia visited a prison in the city of Berlin. And when the king stepped into the prison, Immediately, all of the prisoners in that place clamored toward the king, all of them claiming to be innocent, all of them declaring that they had been unjustly charged and therefore were unjustly imprisoned. All of them, all of them, that is, except one. There was one man who stayed in his cell. The king was rather intrigued by that. So he walked over to the cell and he said to the prisoner there, Why are you here? And the prisoner said, I was charged with theft. And the king said, are you guilty? And the prisoner said, yes, sire, I am. I am getting what I deserve. Whereupon the king wheeled around on the guards and he said, get this guilty man out of here. I don't want him contaminating all of these innocent people. You see, that's what happened to Peter. He was honest with God. That's what I want you to be aware of. That if we are honest with God, God will set us free from yesterday's failures. Ah, that brings me then to chapter 3, grace. This story of Peter ends in two little words. That's it, two little words, two remarkable little words. You find them right at the end of Mark's gospel account in his account of the resurrection. It's, well, it's in Mark chapter 16. We are told there about the resurrection and about how then the angel of God spoke to the women at the now empty tomb. And the angel said to the women, go tell his disciples, and here are the two little words, and Peter. Ha! You hear that? Peter's name is called. Go tell his disciples, and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Peter's name is mentioned. Go tell his disciples and Peter. I tell you, it is almost as if all heaven and earth had watched as Peter had fallen flat on his face in failure. And now suddenly, it's as if all heaven and earth has rallied to lift him up to another chance at glory. Go tell his disciples, and Peter, especially Peter, that he is in Galilee and he is waiting for you. You understand that what he does for Peter, he does for us. Peter's story 
began in grace. And here his story ends in grace. The same thing is true of your story and mine. For our God is the God who offers us the second chance in Jesus Christ. Grace, amazing grace. <laughs> Will you let me please be very personal with you for a moment? My beloved professor James Stewart of Scotland used to say, every sermon well preached will cause you to die a little. It's true. You see, what makes a sermon a sermon is the anointing touch of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit touches a sermon, the Holy Spirit sets that sermon on fire. And when the Holy Spirit sets that sermon on fire, it consumes something down inside the preacher. Take to the pulpit in the grip of that spirit, James Stewart used to say to me, and it may cost you. It may cost you dearly. It may even ultimately consume you. Nearly two years now, I have been taking to this pulpit in the grip of that Holy Spirit. And I know the cost of pouring yourself out in the pulpit with all of the passion you possess in the hope that the people to whom you speak might come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, as Master and Friend, in the hope that there might be some here who in this moment are so touched by the power of Christ that for as long as they live, they will never forget this day in this sanctuary. And I know the cost of wondering if it happens at all. You see, more than anything else in all the world, I want you to know that you matter to Jesus Christ. I want you to know that your story begins in His grace, and your story will end in His grace as well. I want you to know that in your life, when you blow it and you know it like Peter did, you can count on the fact that in Christ, God is going to call your name in love. And God is going to offer you another chance at glory. I want you to know that God loves you, loves every single one of you, loves you as if you were the only one in all the world to love. And therefore, no matter what it may cost, I'm going to keep taking to this pulpit in the grip of that Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep telling you about Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep calling you to commit your life to Him. I'm going to keep preaching His transforming, life-giving, world-changing, death-defeating gospel until under the consuming fire of the Holy Spirit there is of me nothing left. Pray with me, please. God on high, hear my prayer. I ask but one thing of you, that these people whom I so dearly love may fall in love with Jesus Christ. Amen.